Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I am Marilyn Ritchie, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Jason and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussion. I am Jason Moore, and it is great to be back to host episode 18, our 19th episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. Marilyn won't be able to join us this episode, so I will be flying solo. It's been a busy couple weeks since our last recording for me. I'm still getting settled and building my team at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, um, but I can report that we've been very successful hiring uh, a team. I've hired eight data scientists, um, a software engineer, a programmer, a couple postdocs. And so I feel like um, we're finally getting a team together and are able to start working on research projects and infrastructure projects. And so I'm very excited. I think we've, we've got some really great people that we've hired and um, just thrilled to be, to be going. You know, anytime you move to a new institution, you have to expect some months of downtime. And, um, but after six months on the job, I feel like I'm uh, off and running. And we uh, are launching some new research projects. We're going to continue our work on automated machine learning. And we've got a, a long list of uh, new features and changes we want to make to some of our automated machine learning software. And we started a really fun new project building on our experience with automated machine learning, thinking about how do you build automated tools for doing different kinds of bioinformatics analyses. So now, now that we know how to get the computer to automatically do machine learning, can we get it to automatically do something like uh, a genetic analysis? And so we've got uh, a prototype just about working for an automated approach for quantitative trait locus analysis. So I'm really looking forward to testing that and applying it to real data and writing up a paper uh, this year on, on that software package. Uh, I gave a couple virtual talks uh, since the last recording. I gave a talk at UCLA um, for their uh, bioinformatics program and, and am really, really looking forward to building bridges with the faculty there. And, and hope, hope to get one or more adjunct appointments at UCLA and, and build on the proximity. They're just about a 20 minute drive away from us here in West Hollywood. I also gave a talk for the medical data science group at the University of Washington, and that was a lot of fun and very well received. And I, uh, the UCLA talk actually was in person and the University of Washington talk was um, uh, virtual. And the last thing I'll mention, I've, I've, I've been crazy busy with a lot of things, but the last thing I'll mention today on the show is um, we submitted a paper a year ago to BMC Bioinformatics, and we still don't have a first decision yet. And, you know, I'm, I'm, if you know me, I, I don't complain a lot, but 
I really think a year is a long time to wait for a first decision from uh, an open access journal or any journal for that matter. And the reason this bothers me so much is that the first author is a, uh, a young female scientist, a postdoctoral student, you know, trying to get their work published so they can build their career. And for a journal to treat, uh, you know, a young female scientist like that, I think is just inexcusable. And, you know, we've talked about BMC bioinformatics on the podcast um, before, and I have had trouble with them before. And, and I, I think I even said at one point on the podcast, I think I'm going to give them another try. And um, uh, so anyway, my, my, my other try hasn't gone so well. So hopefully your experience is different, but I don't think I'm going to be submitting papers to BMC Bioinformatics anytime soon. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you're listening to us for the first time, you can find us on the web at bmipodcast.org. You can leave feedback with the email address feedback at bmipodcast.org. And you can also leave feedback on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at bmirpodcast and on our Facebook page. So be sure and leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. These reviews help us improve the podcast, but also help improve our visibility. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is AI hype. So I ran across a new piece in Stat Magazine from March of this year that caught my eye. And the title is Humility or Hype? An AI leader at Google lays out a vision to transform medical care. So the piece is written by Greg Corrado, who's a very well-known machine learning scientist. He has several titles at Google, including senior research director at Google AI and head of Google's health AI. And before I dig into this um, stat piece, uh, I want to mention a recent survey uh, by the consulting group KPMG who found that 92% of executives had implemented AI technology in their organization. However, 75% of those executives view AI as more hype than reality. Further, 50% say AI is developing too fast for them to keep up. These stats make you wonder why so many have adopted AI and is this, you know, just fear of missing out? Is everybody jumping into the AI game because they're fearful that if they don't, their, their business will, will get left behind? And, and I think that's not to say that AI isn't useful in some cases in, you know, in the business world, but, but you know, maybe, maybe too many people are jumping in, feel lost, and, and thus are expressing some skepticism. I would also point to a recent piece in IEEE Spectrum magazine. Uh, this is from last year uh, about Stanford pro uh, professor Andrew Ng, who's a, a machine learning researcher and expert and co-founder of Google Brain. Ng in the piece talks about how Stanford researchers could develop uh, a machine learning algorithm capable of diagnosing pneumonia from chest x-rays with better accuracy than radiologists can provide. So he notes these successes make for interesting research papers, and that's what we do. We, we, we do research and publish papers. However, turning these results into clinical tools is problematic, as he explains in this piece, because 
The predictive models typically don't generalize to data collected from other hospitals. And of course, this is because the technologies and the protocols are different from hospital to hospital, and that leads to slightly different or even you know, a lot different data that trips up the AI when you take a model developed from one hospital and apply it to data from another hospital. So this makes developing AI tools that we can move into the clinic on a national or international basis really, really difficult. And so Ng says uh, in this piece, and I quote, all of AI, not just healthcare, has a proof of concept to production gap. He goes on to say, the full cycle of a machine learning project is not just modeling, it's finding the right data, deploying it, monitoring it, and feedback to show that it's doing all the things that need to be done for a model to be deployed. So uh, back to the STAT article that I mentioned, and let me read a few quotes from this piece. This is, uh, you know, this is from uh, Greg Corrado, and I quote, as the company gathered to publicly, this is Google they're talking about, as the company gathered to publicly unveil its advances in health AI this week, Corrado, an unabashed evangelist of AI's transformative power, struck a cautionary note seldom heard among Silicon Valley's push to use the technology to reinvent the delivery of medical services. So what is Corrado and uh, Corrado's health AI team working on? Um, they provide in this piece uh, you know, updates on several projects, including using smartphone cameras for monitoring health and using AI to perform prenatal ultrasounds. And I think that project's a collaboration with, with some folks at Northwestern University. And so I go on to quote from the piece, in the health space, I don't think technology companies, and this is again, Greg Corrado speaking, I don't think technology companies should do anything like move fast and break things, he said, referencing a common mantra of tech culture. We actually really, really need to be careful and move at the pace that's comfortable for caregivers and folks who work in that community. And I go on to quote, that's one of the pieces of humbleness I want the organization to project, he said. We want to keep the world abreast of what we believe is possible and then enter into a conversation with care communities and clinicians to understand which of those things we can do are worth doing, which of those things can help the most. Uh, and I go on to quote, um, there continues to be an onus on practitioners of AI technologies to de demystify to share, to explain, and to really be able to demonstrate that things work in the real world, he said. In healthcare, the proof is in the pudding. So I really, I really was struck by this piece because it's a rare example of a bit of humility and a, and a, and a bit of uh, caution coming from the tech industry, which you rarely hear because, you know, they're trying to make money. They're trying to sell products. You know, it's not their... They don't see it as their job to be skeptical or cautionary um, as they're trying to sell technology or develop technology. So here you have a prominent AI researcher from Google expressing some concern, some, some humility. And I think that comes from being on the front lines of trying to develop AI tools that help people, but for which they can also profit from. And there aren't a lot of success stories to go around. Um, so I think that's where this humbleness comes from. And, you know, we've talked previously on the podcast about the IBM Watson story. And, you know, if you recall, you know, 
IBM building on the success of Watson for beating the Jeopardy champion back around, you know, 20 years ago, uh, decided to sell Watson to the healthcare industry and rolled it out, you know, rolled out Watson for oncology and sold it to some prominent cancer centers. Um, and uh, those cancer centers put it to the test and found out that Watson did not perform as well as their own, uh, their own oncologist at doing things like prescribing chemotherapy for cancer patients. And so the Watson story is a long one, and it's a sad one because, you know, to make a long story short, Watson uh, did not perform as well as the hype. Uh, and um, as a result, suffered uh, a lot of setbacks. And ultimately, IBM decided to sell Watson, as we mentioned on the last podcast. And so I think, you know, that's where some of this humility comes from, is from Watson and other examples of big tech like Google, Microsoft, others, uh, Apple that tried to jump into the healthcare game and realized it's really, really darn hard. So anyway, I think, um, you know, I think we that work in the healthcare business, I'm, I work at a hospital now, so I'm very, very much focused on how do we develop powerful AI and that, that can and improve the health of patients and improve the healthcare process. You know, how, how do we in healthcare assess these technologies? How do we evaluate them? How do we trust them? How do we partner with these tech companies when they're trying to sell us something? There are a lot of good questions here to explore. And I think this stat article uh, does a really nice job on uh, sort of opening the door to having those more humble, humility-based conversations. It is now time for some news items. Here are a few things that caught our eye over the last few weeks. So first up, um, I ran across a great preprint on the harm of class imbalance corrections for risk predictions in machine learning. And in this paper, the authors compare a number of approaches for correcting imbalance due to including undersampling, oversampling, and a method called SMOTE, which is very popular, which we've used. And they found that all the methods, and they had a test data set that they, uh, a real data set that they applied these methods to, they found that all the methods resulted in strong overestimation of the minority class that was being predicted. So I think this is a good paper to read and to be aware of as, as we try to approach um, class imbalance issues. And we've certainly worked with some large data sets where the outcome of interest is very rare, like less than 10%. And have applied some of these methods, and so it's a, it's a. I think I think it's a good cautionary tale that, in some cases, you might be doing more damage uh, than good by correcting for the uh, the imbalance. And as always, we have links in the show notes to all of the news items and papers and other uh, other things that we mention here. So second up. Um, there was a very interesting piece in the Harvard Business Review from March 23rd titled Overcoming the C-Suite's Distrust of AI. This piece mentions the, uh, a KPMG survey uh, that we discussed earlier. Um, it also mentions uh, a Deloitte survey showing similar results with two-thirds of executives feeling not comfortable with advanced analytic systems, including AI. And the piece says, and I quote, when will executives be ready to take AI to the next step and trust it enough to act more, 
act on more strategic recommendations that will impact their business. There are many challenges, but there are four actions that can be taken to increase executive confidence in making AI-assisted decisions. And they list um, the first, create reliable AI models that deliver consistent insights and recommendations. Um, that's a good one. Number two, avoid data biases that skew recommendations by AI. You have to know your data and the biases and how your algorithm deals with those and, and whether it's fair or not. Number three, make sure that AI provides decisions that are ethical and moral. And number four, be able to explain the decisions made by AI instead of a black box situation. So I agree with all of these. I think these are great recommendations. And of course, these are all things we talk about in the you know, AI and healthcare space. And so they also provide some tasks directed at executives um, for raising confidence. Number one, promote ownership and responsibility for AI beyond the IT department. Don't, don't blame your IT folks uh, when the AI goes wrong. It, it, everybody who makes the decisions to implement an AI needs to be responsible and have ownership over that decision, which means you, know, you need to be informed, of course. Number two, recognize that AI is simply code that makes decisions based on prior data and patterns with some guesstimation of the future, every business leader, as well as employees working with them, still needs critical thinking skill, skills to challenge AI output. I couldn't agree with this one more. We should not trust AI. We should challenge it and um, put it to the test and make sure we believe the results before acting on them. Number three, target AI to areas where it is most impactful and refine these first which will add the most business value. Number four, investigate and push for the most impactful technologies. Number five, ensure fairness in AI through greater transparency. Number six, foster greater awareness and training for fair and actionable AI at all levels. Number seven, review or audit AI results on a regular systematic bias. I think this is a good one. And finally, take responsibility and own decisions and course correct if a wrong decision is ever made without blaming it on the AI. So anyway, if you're, if you're in the business world, um, I think this Harvard Business Review article is a good one to take a look at. Okay, next up, I ran across a, a very nice paper on machine learning for spatial transcriptomics data that was published by Zhang et al. in Genome Biology this month in March. And you know, looking at spatial patterns of gene expression across tissues, across cells, is a really hot area of bioinformatics. We have a lot of work to do in that space. So this paper in genome biology is definitely worth checking out if you work in that area. Next up, um, there's a nice opinion piece in Stat Magazine by Dr. Charlotte Ginsberg on digital health, the latest iteration of medicine's knowledge problem. And she writes, and I quote, digital health has three key differences from prior advances in medicine that keep me up at night. Number one is that digital health applications are not regulated or researched in the same way as medications and devices, making it harder to measure their usefulness and utility in familiar ways. Number two, another is that patients can access and consume these products without needing a physician's guidance or prescription. And number three, the third difference is that the digital platform, its potential for scale, accessibility, and impact are enormous. And she goes on to, to offer three possible solutions uh, to digital, digital health. Number one, create a clinical support tool for 
digital applications, you know, uh, connecting uh, in the clinic with these um, with devices that are measuring health outcomes. Uh, number two, incorporate into the medical school curriculum formal lessons for navigating digital health and recommending digital tool to patients. So just like informatics needs to be integrated into the medical school curriculum, so every clinician is familiar with basic informatics principles uh, because medicine, the practice of medicine is increasingly becoming an informatics exercise. We also need to teach medical students about digital tools and when to use them and how to use them in a clinical setting. And number three, create online review systems for different apps where doctors and patients can share their experiences. So anyway, I thought this was a very thoughtful piece, and I think she raises some, some really interesting questions and offers some, some good solutions. Um, so again, this was published in Stat Magazine, and we'll have a link in the show notes to it. Next, I ran across a nice piece by Dr. Marja Gassemi, uh, published in Lancet Digital Health, on the false hope of current approaches to explainable AI in healthcare. The authors argue that current explainability approaches will not solve the trust and transparent issues that we know are there that are needed to mitigate bias in healthcare. And they instead advocate for rigorous internal and external validation as a means for achieving these goals. And they further caution against explainability being a requirement for models deployed in the clinic. So I read this piece, I actually read this piece twice, and I think they raise some interesting questions um, and make some interesting arguments. And, and, I think, and I think I agree with much of what they said, but I think they missed some important, um, important aspects of, of um, explainable AI in healthcare. And one of the points I would say is missing is when I think about explainable AI, in addition to you know, trust and transparency and interpretation, you know, I you know, if, if I were a clinician, I would want an AI that I could learn from, you know, if when a clinician has a difficult medical case, what do you do? You go down the hall or you call up one of your, one of your buddies and say, Hey, I've got this difficult case. What do you think? And your colleague will give an opinion based on their experience and based on their knowledge. And you can, you can ask the why question you can, you can ask, you know, why do you think that? And in the process of engaging with another expert, you can learn and, and therefore, you know, become a better clinician. And so I think this piece fails to mention what I think is very important about explainable AI is the ability of the clinician to learn from the AI and to internalize that as part of their internal decision-making process. And so I think that's a dimension that we need to explore more in the uh, explainable AI space. So anyway, it's an interesting piece that definitely made me think. And uh, if you have any thoughts about whether you agree or disagree with the article, we would, we would love to hear from you. Next, I ran across an interesting blog post by Stephen Hurd, who runs a blog called Scientist Sees Squirrel. And the piece he wrote is titled, Maybe It Is Time to Stop Teaching the Scientific Method in First-Year Biology. And in, in this interesting blog post, he, he first reviews the scientific method, which everybody's familiar with, right? You start with a question, you learn the necessary background, you construct a hypothesis, you conduct an experiment, you collect and analyze the results, the, the data, and, 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 and do analysis and draw inferences, and then you communicate the results. That's the scientific method that we're all taught, you know, in college, um, 
even in high school, in, especially in biology classes. And he points out, based on his experience, um, and, and he is, he is a, you know, a biology teacher, and he points out that this, this approach to teaching the scientific method fails for several reasons. First, students fall into the trap of conflating hypothesis with prediction, which leads to a lot of confusing discussions. I think I could see I can see that. You know, a lot of lot of questions and uh, about you know what a hypothesis is, especially when you're learning that for the first time. And second, and importantly, uh, he you know he says that um, students learn that experimentation is the only way to test a hypothesis. Uh, and he argues that this ignores theoretical and observational studies. He points to fields such as astronomy, where you can't do experiments on stars and comets and planets, right? That's all observational stuff, but nonetheless, it's science. And astronomers are asking questions and gathering evidence and making inferences without ever doing an experiment. Um, he goes on to argue uh, that we should um, also teach methods of science. And perhaps these are more important, such as how to collaborate, uh, how to co-author a paper, how to manage data, the ethical issues that go with doing science, citation practices, peer review, scientific writing. And so anyway, it's uh, I was intrigued by the piece. Um, I think both are important, scientific method and the methods of science, but I think he makes some good arguments. And clearly he's somebody that speaks from experience. And you know, may, maybe uh, this resonates with other people who teach the scientific method that they often get bogged down or it doesn't cover everything uh, that's necessary. Okay, next, uh, Nicholson et al. And, and this is a paper coming from uh, Dr. Casey Green's lab, uh, one of my good friends. And they have an interesting uh, new paper in PLOS Biology on examining the linguistic shifts between preprints and publications. And they show that papers with longer times between preprint posting and publication had more changes to the text in the final publication. So this is presumably due to changes requested by the reviewers once the paper was in peer review, which is interesting. So you can look and see uh, from preprints and get an idea of how much a paper changed in, you know, in response to peer review. So the authors provide a web app to identify which journals and which articles have, have, uh, are the most similar to their preprint predecessors. So this raised the question in my mind, could you use this web app, this tool that they've developed to find journals that are less likely to heavily modify your paper? So, you know, it's an interesting question, maybe even an ethical question, whether uh, you would want to use something like this. Next, um, I ran across a great piece by Dr. Michael Levin in Aeon Magazine from March 8th titled Modular Cognition, Powerful Tricks from Computer Science and Cybernetics Show How Evolution Hacked Its Way to Intelligence from the Bottom Up. And this caught my eye because I'm interested in evolutionary computation, computation inspired by evolution, by natural selection. And there's lots of interesting parallels raised in this paper, um, ex, you know, lots of exploration of the connection between computation and biology. And I think it has a lot of relevance to AI, even though he doesn't explicitly talk much about AI in the paper. But I think there's a lot of good raw material here for AI researchers to think about, especially those of you that, like me, are inspired by how biology solves problems. 
Okay, next up, I ran across a paper I'd never seen before on the role of machine learning in clinical research. This paper was published by Weisler et al. in the journal Trials back in August of 2021. Uh, the paper came out of a conference on the future of machine learning for translational research and clinical trials. And the authors who attended the conference wrote this paper and they cover areas such as preclinical drug discovery, um, identifying participants for clinical trials, um, you know, clinical data collection and management and barriers to using uh, machine learning and clinical research. So this paper caught my eye because it really focuses on clinical trials and other related areas. And if you work in that space, I highly recommend taking a look at it. Um, and some of the authors um, are experts in the machine learning field. I also ran across a paper I had not seen before by Lian Tong, published in the journal Patterns back in October of 2020. And the title is Statistical Hypothesis Testing versus Machine Learning Binary Classification Distinctions and Guidelines. And what I love about this paper is it explores some of the confusion in data science between inference, which we do, for example, when using parametric statistical methods, and prediction, which is typically what we do in machine learning. And the difference between these two is a common topic of conversation among statisticians in particular, who cringe when data scientists or computer scientists confuse the two. So anyway, it's well worth a read. I really enjoyed this paper and I think it, it makes some really important distinctions between those two things. On the ethics front, I was very surprised to learn that Dr. Terry Magnuson resigned as vice chancellor for research at the University of North Carolina after it was revealed that he copied text he found online into a grant NIH grant application. The University of North Carolina Office of Research, Research Integrity said that he, and I quote, engaged in research misconduct by intentionally, knowingly, and recklessly, recklessly plagiarizing text from two guides, material from a company that makes sequencing kits, and a review article. And I think what happened here is that he copied some text for describing some, you know, some methods, some molecular methods, and somebody caught it and he got called out on it. And, um, and the University of North Carolina did an investigation and concluded that he recommended that he step down, which he did. And Dr. Ma I've met Dr. Magnuson. He's a very well-known geneticist and he's been at, at UNC for decades. And this was very surprising to me. Why would somebody of this stature need to plagiarize text for a grant application? Surely, you know, he could write this himself or have people in his lab that could write this. Um, so anyway, he, I, I, you know, who knows what his thought process was, but at, at best, this was sloppy and stupid of him to do. And at worst, it's just blatant plagiarism. And um, so anyway, it's sad to see, but I think a good reminder as we teach our students and young trainees about ethics and um, that, you know, you need to write these things yourself or give appropriate credit if you want to use somebody else's text. Okay, um, I was very pleased to learn about a new 500 page open access book on Conway's Game of Life. And I have a link here in the show notes um, to, the, um, uh, to the piece. And uh, it, this is a great book. I love Conway's Game of Life. If you don't know, this was one of the first examples of a cellular automaton developed by mathematician um, John Conway. 
uh, early in the 1970s and then, you know, became very famous because you could implement it in the computer and it makes pretty pictures and it makes complex patterns that look like life forms. And so anyway, kudos to the authors for releasing this book as open access and making it available to the community. Okay, last up, I have two tweets that I ran across that I thought I would mention. The first is from Owen Evans, at Owen Evans uh, uh, dash UK. Uh, this is a tweet from March 11th. And the tweet says, how many deep mind researchers does it take to create a major AI paper? Over five years, team size has grown. So if you remember, DeepMind um, has some of these headline grabbing examples of AI solving human competitive problems. One of the first was in 2015, they used AI to play uh, old uh, uh, retro Atari games. And the paper describing that work had 19 authors on it. Then in 2016, they published AlphaGo and that had 20 papers, uh, 20 authors. And then in 2021, they published AlphaFold 2, which received a lot of attention. And we mentioned on the podcast last year um, for solving some of the protein folding problems. And that paper has 32 authors. And then they had a paper from last year on the Gopher language model, which had 80 authors. So anyway, the tweet <laughs> sort of raises this interesting question about, uh, about authorship and you know, why it's interesting that as the complexity of the problems that AI is solving increases, so do the number of authors on these papers going from 19 authors in 2015 to, to 80 authors in 21, 2021. And is that a trend that's going to continue? And what does that mean? Is it, is it, um, you know, does it just take a lot more and more experts to get the AI to do something hard or, um, I don't know. Anyway, I, I thought it was interesting, so I thought I'd throw it out there. Uh, the second tweet I'll mention is one from 2018, March, uh, November 24th, 2018. This is from uh, Arnaldo Diaz Vasquez, who used to be at Penn and is now in Texas. And he is at A-D-I-A-Z underscore PhD on Twitter. And he says, and I quote, mentoring is not about creating many versions of ourselves. It's about empowering our students to be independent thinkers, to be proud of their unique voices. It's also about having faith in our students and having their backs in times of difficulty and self-doubt. So I agree with this completely. And I, I follow Arnaldo religiously on Twitter, and he, uh, he's, he's got a lot of great tweets about education and diversity and um, academia, et cetera. And uh, thanks, Arnaldo. I, I can't agree more with that tweet. Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we will pick a recent paper for discussion. Today, we will discuss 10 quick tips for deep learning in biology by Lee et al., published March 24th in PLOS Computational Biology. So I'm just gonna go through this paper quickly and there are 10 tips uh, and I'll make a few comments, but definitely a paper worth reading if you're interested in deep learning or doing deep learning, because I agree with all of these tips. Their first one is to use an appropriate machine learning method and they make the comment that deep learning may not be the right method. And I think that's absolutely true. I think there's a tendency to think that deep learning is a one size fits all for any problem. And that's certainly not the case. Um, 
So, you know, thinking about whether deep learning is the right method or whether some other machine learning method is, is, is better um, is, I, I think, a great tip. Number two, establish baselines using simple models. This one I really like, and I think this is very rarely done, but you know, performing a simple either statistical or machine learning analysis first, just to get some baseline results, because some patterns are just linear, they're just additive, and you don't really need a machine learning model. And so something like logistic regression or a simple decision tree might work quite well. And so why go to all the hassle of, you know, spending, you know, thousands or millions of hours of CPU time and constructing complicated deep learning algorithms when a simple logistic regression is the best you can do. And I think we mentioned the paper by Google uh, on a, a previous podcast that was published in uh, Digital uh, Medicine, uh, I think in 2018, where they applied a fancy giant deep learning algorithm to millions of patients of electronic health record data. And if you look in the supplemental materials, a logistic regression performed just as well. So uh, I think this is a really important tip. And, and when I review papers now, I, I ask the authors to provide the baseline model. And I think it's something we should all get in the practice of doing. Number three is to ensure reproducibility and robustness. And you know, we talked about the X-ray example um, earlier in the, in the discussion section. And um, so uh, showing that your models uh, are reproducible and that they're robust is important. Number four, know your data. Uh, very important. Know what the biases are in your data. Uh, you know, there's a lot of effort that needs to go into clean data cleaning and quality control and making sure you're not introducing biases as you attempt to deal with biases. So a lot of, uh, lot of effort needs to go into this. And I would say a shortcoming of a lot of machine learning papers, and I think we touched upon this in the last podcast, is that many of them don't provide the details of how they clean the data, which is so important for reproducibility. Number five is to select a sensible architecture for your neural network. And they say, let the problem inform the design. And I would say an example of this is what's called a visible neural network where you use biological uh, connections to, or biological knowledge to construct the architecture of the neural network. So for example, we just published a paper on using biochemical pathways to uh, structure neural network architectures. So I think this is a great idea and, a, and something that's worth putting a lot of work into. Number six, um, optimize the hyperparameters. And again, it's, it's surprising how many papers I review that don't provide hyperparameter optimization. Number seven, mitigate overfitting, for example, using holdout data, very, very important. Number eight, maximize interpre interpretation. And so that gets back to point number one about picking a machine learning model and number two about sim exploring simple models. You know, the simpler machine learning and statistical models are more interpretable. And if they perform equally well to a deep learning algorithm, then that's what you should use because you can do a better job of interpreting. Number nine is avoid over-interpretation, reading too much into your results. I think that's an important one to think about um, that's also commonly ignored. And number 10, which is perhaps the most important especially in the healthcare domain is to prioritize research ethics to make sure your, your algorithm is fair, it's ethical and explainable. So um, I highly recommend this paper. I don't have a lot more to say about it. I agree with everything they say in here. I think it's a well-written paper and they provide several paragraphs for each of these points, really digging into the literature, providing examples, exploring the issues, well worth the read and an important contribution to the literature. 
Now on to our open data segment. Today, I will introduce the All of Us project and data resource. Uh, very briefly, uh, Dr. Josh Denny, who uh, used to be at Vanderbilt and now leads the All of Us project as CEO, had a very nice uh, post on the NIH director's blog site announcing that they have released nearly 100,000 whole genome sequences with phenotypes derived from the electronic health record. All of us started four years ago to provide omics and phenotype data on a million diverse subjects from the United States. This is kind of the US equivalent to the UK Biobank, if you're familiar with that, which we've talked about previously on the show. Um, they are currently adding to the resource at a clip of about 5,000 subjects with full sequence data every week. So this is an amazing resource. Um, and they have a whole bunch of other data types in here and other ancillary studies worth checking out. I mean, they provide information from surveys, health tracking devices, even data from the US Census, which is amazing. I'm glad they were able to, to include that. And, and they really have an emphasis on diversity. It was very important from the start of this project that this cohort of a million subjects that they're putting together represent the diversity of the United States, which is pretty substantial. So um, I look forward to using this resource. I have not um, taken the deep dive into all of us yet, but plan to in the coming months. And one of the interesting things from an informatics point of view is that unlike the UK Biobank, which you can download and, and work on your own computer with, uh, all of us um, has a, what they call the researcher workbench environment, which is a cloud-based platform where registered researchers can access um, uh, their data. Um, so, you know, they have powerful tools to support data analysis and collaboration and, and they have a, you know, a user support hub. So specifically uh, it includes a workspace for storing and analyzing data. So the idea is you, you log in and work with the data in their cloud platform. You don't download the data. So that keeps it secure and keeps it in a safe place which I can understand, especially since it's whole genome sequence data, which reveals a lot about the individuals in the study. Um, they allow, provide the capability for R and Python notebooks, including cloud -based, a cloud-based Jupyter environment. So that's nice. You can take your Python code to their environment to, to do your analytics. Um, they have a data set builder, a cohort builder, and a user support hub, as I mentioned. Um, so I, you know, I think this is a, a great data resource. Um, I haven't tried the workbench yet, but look forward to in the coming months. And I'm sure, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be able to report back and we'd love to hear from you if you're using the All of Us data and have experience with the workbench. I think they said, I think I read that they have something like 1500 registered users now, and I'm sure that's gonna grow substantially over the coming years. So if you've given it a try and, you know, have some experience with it and wanna share your thoughts, please reach out and, and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And unfortunately, Marilyn's not here with us today. I'm sure she would have a lot to say about this and she actually is a member of the advisory panel. So we can, we can ask her about it um, on a future podcast. I'd love to hear her thoughts about it and, and especially being a little bit of an insider. So we'll have links to the blog post and to the All of Us project here in the show notes. Okay, now on to just a few conference updates. Uh, the Intelligent Systems and Molecular Biology Conference is being held July 10th through 14th in Madison, Wisconsin, here in the U.S. 
Um, I think the paper deadline is passed, but they have abstracts. They have an abstract due date of April 21st. So um, this is the biggest bioinformatics conference and definitely worth checking out if you've never been. Um, I'll also mention the 13th um, ACM conference on bioinformatics, computational biology and health informatics, ACMBCB, which um, is really more of a computer science conference in the bioinformatics space. Um, it's going to be held in Chicago this year, August 7th through 10th of 2022. And you still have time to submit a paper. Paper and workshop proposals are due April 15th. Um, and I am actually the um, head of the, um, the communications um, committee for, for this conference, which is why I'm including it in the podcast today to let you all know about it and do, do my job. Um, the American Medical Informatics Association annual meeting um, is happening November 5th through 9th in Washington, D.C., so be sure and put that on your schedule. I high, highly recommend it, especially if you work a little bit more in the clinical or healthcare space. Um, so we'll have a link here on the show notes, and the paper deadline, unfortunately, has passed, but nonetheless, an important uh, meeting and great networking opportunity for colleagues in the healthcare um, and translational research space. And finally, I'll mention the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing, which, as you know, is one of my favorite conferences, and I know it's one of Maryland's favorite conferences. And it was held in person this year in January, and it'll be held next year, January 3rd through 7th, again, on the Big Island of Hawaii. And um, the session themes uh, for the call for papers should be released soon. I know they have either made those decisions or are making them very soon. And papers are due as always on August 1st. So now is the time to start planning a paper submission. I've let my lab know. And I typically take anybody to the conference from my lab that publishes a paper. It's a great venue. The papers are open access. And um, if you haven't been to the conference, it's just a really wonderful conference. It's a really close knit community and um, about you know 250 people attend. So you really get to know everybody and there's lots of opportunities for, for communicating and meeting with people. A lot of leaders in the field go. So um, get that on your calendar and, and submit a paper. It is now time for our, our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is service as a leader. And I picked the topic today because I ran across uh, the following quote on Twitter. And the quote is, if, uh, if, if service is beneath you, then leadership will always be beyond you. And this quote comes from uh, Salome uh, Thomas L who from his webpage says he's an award-winning teacher and school principal. So very, very much involved in education and education leadership. And this, this quote really uh, resonated with me because I've done service my entire career. And I know service isn't for everybody, but I got involved in running a bioinformatics corps at Vanderbilt University uh, very early in my career. And I've run bioinformatics cores my entire career. And I've done lots of other kinds of service for, you know, for uh, professional societies and conferences and uh, my institutions. And um, so I have a lot of service experience. And I can say that uh, there are a lot of benefits to doing service. Um, you know, you really come across a lot of interesting things. You get exposed to you know, what others are thinking about, what others need in the informatics space or the IT space. 
um, you know, of course, service is a, you know, it's your opportunity to give back to your colleagues, to your institution, to your professional society, to your community, uh, to your country, even. Um, so there are a lot of good reasons to do service. And, you know, there are some downsides. It can be time consuming. Um, it's not always the most fun thing to do. Sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do. But the point of this quote, if service is beneath you, then leadership will always be beyond you. And I've had leadership positions almost my entire career, going back to leading a bioinformatics corps and then ultimately becoming, you know, an institute director and, and now a department chair. And I think this quote is absolutely true. And I think service is a very, very important part of leadership um, because leadership is really about giving back. It's about helping people. It's about making a difference. It's about helping your institution. And, um, and service is a very important part of that. And so what I would say to people, you know, lots of people aspire to be leaders, but I think everybody has different motivations for doing it. And I would say the wrong motivations for being a leader are for more salary or for more power uh, or more prestige. If you have a big ego that needs to be fed, that's the wrong reason to do leadership. And I think those are the kind of people that end up sometimes being poor leaders because they're not interested in the actual role of being a leader, which is helping people and service. And so that's why I think this quote is so important because if you enjoy service, then I think you have one of the qualities that potentially will make a, for a good leader because you inherently like to help people and you like to help your institution, et cetera. So I don't think I have a lot more to say about this. I think, um, you know, for young people, it's, it's, it's good to test the waters of service, see if it's something you enjoy. But if you aspire to be a leader, this is a good litmus test for whether you will be a good leader, whether you will enjoy being a leader is by doing service and, and asking yourself the question, do I enjoy doing service? Do I enjoy helping people? Do I enjoy helping my institution? Because it's a big part of being a leader. Okay, it's time for our closing remarks. And, um, you know, it's, it's always sad to host the podcast without Marilyn. Marilyn, I missed you. Um, I enjoy our back and forth about all these topics. Um, and um, would love to hear your thoughts, Marilyn, about anything we've discussed on the podcast today. But I guess my closing thoughts are that we have, and, and I've probably said this before, but I think it's worth iterating, reiterating over and over again, that we have so much work to do in the AI and healthcare space. We spent a lot of time today talking about AI. And, you know, I think AI is really in its infancy, despite all the advances that have been made, despite having some FDA approved AI algorithms for, you know, doing things like diagnosing diabetic retinopathy from retinal images. You know, we have some success stories, but they're few and far between. And I think there are many, many more failures uh, than there are successes. And, you know, IBM Watson, as we discussed, is a perfect example of that. And I think the humility, you know, that Google, um, that Greg Corrado is, is expressing that we talked about earlier is a good example of that. We have so much work to do. There's so many big issues in healthcare. Healthcare is a really hard problem. It's hard for clinicians. Um, it requires big teams of people. You know, it requires AI algorithms that are sensitive, you know, that know, know how to deal with data biases and data sparseness and data quality control issues and, you know, all the trust and transparency and explainability and interpretability issues that we've talked about. And 
And even once you have an AI that that works well and that you trust and believe and have validated, you know, working in it, getting it into a clinical workflow and doing clinical decision support is really, really hard. Uh, clinicians don't have time to deal with pop-ups and, you know, notices uh, in, in the electronic health record. So anyway, I, you know, this is, this, we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about this, you know, over and over again in, in the coming podcast episodes. And we have talked about it in the past, but AI is just so hard, but in my mind, that's what makes it so exciting. I like a good challenge. And, and so I would definitely encourage people to get into the AI and healthcare space, encourage young people to get into this space. We, we need the help. There's a lot of work to be done before AI can really be impactful uh, for improving the lives of, of, of people and patients. So with that, um, I want to end by thanking Michael Stauffer, our sound engineer, who got us through the first um, the first uh, eighteen episodes. And uh, Michael, you did a great job, and and we really appreciate all your hard work. And it is a lot of hard work to edit these podcasts and produce them and get them ready for public consumption. So thank you, Michael. Michael has moved on to other things, and I wish him well. And really enjoyed working with him. And, and I would like to introduce uh, David Erdody, who is listening in the background here on the podcast, and he has joined us as our new sound engineer. And so thank you very much, David, for, for joining us. And, and we, uh, Marilyn and I very much look forward to working with you. And I'll, I'll just mention that David's a, a good friend of mine. We go way back to our, uh, my early Michigan days before graduate school. We worked together in the lab, shoulder to shoulder, doing uh, PCR and Southern blots and all that kind of good stuff. And, and um, so I've known David for a long time. And David is, um, has, got a really, has had a really interesting career. He's currently the editor and linguist for a company called DeepZen, which uses AI to turn text into audio content um, that's rich with emotion, in, in, intonation, and rhythm uh, you know, of naturally spoken voice. Um, he's also the long-term longtime founder and editor-in-chief of a company called Assistive Media. Uh, I think it's a nonprofit, which is an interbased uh, audio reading service designed for people with visual and reading impairments. And uh, David, I, I just can't imagine the, the large number of people that you've helped with your, your work in, in, in reading text and providing that audio content. So uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, we look forward to working with you. So uh, that is it for today. Uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us, for joining me, especially without Marilyn here. I know she's a big star on the show and that you all enjoy Marilyn and hopefully she'll be able to join us next time. And um, so we will see you on the next episode. Thank you. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you'll be able to find some time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.